I'm so excited to get into God's Word with you tonight. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, so you can turn your Bibles there to Mark 9. And also you can put a marker in Exodus chapter 24. So Exodus 24 and Mark chapter 9. We're going to have some fun tonight. And really, I got two goals for tonight. My first goal is that you would leave tonight with an incredible confidence coming from God's Word that God really, really wants to be with you. Now that might sound like a basic idea, but just think for a second about the most powerful person in the world. I don't know who that is, but that they want to be with you. I want you to leave tonight with confidence that the God who created the heavens and the earth desires to be with you. The second thing I want you to leave with tonight is that you would have a confidence in the inerrant word of God. That God's word is without error and that it is one unified story from cover to cover, all pointing to the person of Jesus. Every narrative, every prophecy, every story, it is all pointing to the person of Jesus. So we're going to talk about God's presence and his coming in a message titled The Story of Glory. Does that sound good? Are you guys with me? Okay, so just real quick. It's good. We're going to do a deep dive tonight. So if you're new tonight, welcome. We're so glad you're with us. Jesus loves you. He has a plan for you. And we're going to talk about Jesus tonight, but we're going to go deep into the scriptures. Are you guys all right with that, Bible students? We're going to go deep into it. So Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, we are going to read to verse 10. Let's read God's word together. Beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, let's read. And after six days, Jesus took with him... Peter, James, and John. And he led them up a high mountain. Everyone say high mountain. He led them up a high mountain by themselves and Jesus was transfigured. Everyone say transfigured. Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. Everyone say three tents. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. I love that right there. Underline that one in your Bibles. They saw no one with them, but Jesus only. Only Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the work that you're doing here at Calvary Vista, among us and in us. And Lord, as we open up your word, we pray, God, that you would speak. Lord, we recognize that your word is living and powerful. We recognize that when two or more are gathered in your name, you are here among us. And Father, we ask that you would give us understanding to your word. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would 
convict and convince and encourage and edify and stir within our hearts what you desire to speak to us. Lord, would you give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see what that may be. Father, we welcome you here. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. A couple weeks ago, my son Knox turned two years old. And one of the really cute things that he's doing right now is every single time that I leave the house, he says, Daddy, come back, come back, come back, come back. I mean, it's adorable. Every single time without fail. Come back, come back, come back, come back. And my daughter responds by singing him a song that my wife made up. And it goes like this. Daddy always comes home. He never forgets. So just imagine that, my three-year-old daughter singing to my two-year-old son as he's saying, come back, come back, come back. Daddy always comes home. He never forgets. It's the most adorable thing ever. But I say that to share that that anticipation that Knox has for me to come back is actually the same anticipation that God the Father has to come back to his children. God has always desired to be with his children. He's always desired to come back with them, to dwell among them. Now, the thing is, he wasn't the one who left in the first place, though. If you remember the story, the story of glory, the story of God's presence, we know that back in the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of time, for six days, God created And on the seventh day, after creation was done, he simply just dwelt among his creation to spend time with them, to be with them, to be with Adam and Eve. You see, they, humanity, was created, destined, and designed to stand and to live among the very glory and the presence of God, to experience his presence. Humanity was made in God's image and crowned with his glory. Yet Adam and Eve, what they did, as you know the story, they disobeyed God. They rejected his wisdom. And as a result, mankind was now fallen and fading. And in an act of grace, they were sent out of the Garden of Eden. And ever since... This sin curse means that we've all sinned, that we've all erred, and that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's a result of sin in the picture. But from that moment, when Adam and Eve had to leave the presence and the glory of God, God was always determined to make a way for a holy and just God to be back with his people. He always wanted to come back. He always desired and desires to be among his people. The story of glory comes to a climactic point in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai. You remember where God meets with Moses and it is there that the glory of God reappears on a mountain. In Exodus chapter 19, we read that Moses, along with the elders of Israel, they meet with God at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there God speaks from a cloud and he rolls out a covenant to his people. But in Exodus chapter 24, there's a turning point. There in Exodus 24, beginning in verse 15, if you're there, read with me. We read this, that Moses went up on the mountain And the cloud, that is the glory or the presence of God, covered the mountain. 
Verse 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Verse 17, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now pause, just imagine that for a second. Put yourself in that story with Moses. You're going up the mountain and he has literally consumed or he's called up into this glory, into this cloud of God's glory. And there... God speaks to Moses. While he's up there, we read in chapters 25 to 31 of the book of Exodus that what God does is he gives Moses instructions on how to build a tabernacle. Now, a tabernacle was a place, was a shelter designed So that God's glory and God's presence could dwell and be among his people. Now there was conditions to that because if man even entered into the presence of God, they could surely die. In fact, there in this Exodus account, we know that if the people even touched the mountain, they could die. Why? Because God's glory, because God's weight, because of his presence is so great, it's so holy and so just. And we as men, as humanity, we are not. We've sinned. In fact, I, I love to use the illustration. I've used it before as we're going through our series. I think it was in 1 Corinthians. Of That word for glory has an idea of weight behind it. And I've shared that picture before of going out in the ocean and imagine if a, a whale fell on top of you. The weight of the whale would crush you. In fact, there's a crazy cool video you can look up in Avila Beach where... Uh, I'm from the Central Coast and there in Avila, there's these kayakers that are kayaking and it is a straight like Jonah moment where this whale comes out of the water and literally like swallows the kayaker for a second and the kayaker survives. It's crazy. You can look at it in YouTube. But imagine for a second a whale, if a whale jumped out of the water and fell on a kayaker, the whale would crush the kayaker, Right. In the same way, the weight of God spiritually is so much greater than us because we have sinned and erred. We'd be crushed by the glory or the weight of God's presence. And so the tabernacle was like a defense. It was a shelter. It was a way in in which God could dwell and be among his people without crushing them. And so there on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the directions to build this tabernacle. The tabernacle would turn into a temple, but eventually the glory and the presence of God would leave the temple. And it would result in hundreds of years of silence from God. Now, Just pause for a second and enter back into this story. I don't know where you're at tonight, but I do know that this time of year can be one of the most lonely times of year for many people. In fact, this time of year, depression rates go up. Suicide rates go up. 
It can be a lonely time for many people. Well, the story of glory takes an intermission in which it was a lonely time for God's people. It seemed as if God had abandoned them. They seemed hopeless. They hadn't heard from God, but the story of glory continued. There was hope. A light had dawned there at Christmas on the morning when Jesus was born and God's glory and his presence was placed within a baby boy. In fact, the Apostle John, you know the verse, John 1.14, he penned it perfectly when he said that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. But pause a second. You remember the gospel accounts. You remember the Apostle John. When did John actually see the glory of the Son. When did John actually see the glory of Jesus? Well, it seems here at the Mount Transfiguration. Peter comments this in our series, Second Peter. We saw it in Second Peter chapter 1. In verse 17, we read, For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from the God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on where? The holy mountain, referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. This account here in Mark chapter 9. You see, Mark 9 gives us great, great insight into the glory and into the presence of God. The first thing we're going to see tonight is Jesus's transformation here. Jesus's transformation in verses two through three. Let's read those verses again. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now imagine this, Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus alone on this high mountain and they experience this incredible, awe-inspiring moment. Jesus is transfigured before them. Metamorpho in the original language has the idea of a change of his body. Not a change of his being, but a change of his body. Literally the presence and the glory of God is like popping out of the fabric and the seams of his very being. And he's radiating. He's glowing before Peter, James, and John. This would have been an incredible moment. But it's important to note the context of where this falls into place. The last conversation we have of Jesus with Peter and in front of the disciples was when Peter and Jesus have a very famous interaction. That interaction is when Jesus is revealing to his disciples the plan that he's going to suffer, die, and rise again. And remember what Peter famously responds to Jesus? He pulls him aside, we read there in Mark chapter 8, and he rebukes Jesus. And that's when Jesus then says, get behind me, Satan, and rebukes 
Peter. It is after that circumstance, it is after that situation and that conversation that then Jesus is like, hold on, I need to clear up this whole idea of why I came, of why I'm here. And he gets Peter, James and John, what we call the inner three. He pulls them aside and he takes them up onto this high mountain to reveal to them his divinity. See, it's important to know that the disciples they did not have a full understanding of the deity of Jesus. In fact, they had a very messianic lens in which they viewed Jesus. They were carrying the idea that Jesus was the Messiah who is going to overthrow the Roman Empire and set up a kingdom to rule and reign. That's why Peter is so offended by Jesus's comment of suffering and dying and resurrecting. That's why he's so confused at what's going on. He did not understand what the first coming and why Jesus was there. He only thought of Jesus setting up his kingdom. And so, as a result, the purpose of the transfiguration was to prove to the disciples his divinity, his authority, and to give them an understanding of the purpose of his coming. But what's interesting about this account here in Mark chapter 9 is its parallels between this holy mountain is the words that Peter used in 2 Peter 1. This holy mountain here where Jesus was transfigured and the holy mountain of Exodus chapter 24, which we read, where Moses went up on Mount Sinai. You see, throughout the gospel accounts, we find that Jesus is rewriting or rather fulfilling the narrative of the Old Testament. Remember, the Israelites were stuck and trapped in Egypt. So too, after Jesus's birth in Bethlehem, where did he go? To Egypt to return then to the promised land. The Israelites were tested in the wilderness for 40 years. So too, Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. The Israelites lived off of the manna from heaven. So too, Jesus said, I am the bread of life or I am the manna from heaven. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, prophecies and narratives. And the parallel between Moses's experience on Mount Sinai and Jesus experience on this holy mountain where he is transfigured is remarkable. It seems that Jesus is mimicking or copying the experience of Mount Sinai on this mountain to highlight the importance of his divinity and to give a greater understanding of his presence. And so I created this little chart for you guys to check out. These are the parallels between Mount Sinai and the Transfiguration. Notice both of them, they were called up onto a high mountain. In Exodus 24, 14 or 24, 15, we read that Moses is called up to a high mountain. Here it is perfectly or explicitly or clearly given that Jesus calls them up to a high mountain. And this is interesting because a high mountain is often a place where God's presence is found. Throughout the pages of Scripture in the Old Testament narrative, people would go up to meet with God. In fact, it's believed, according to the book of Ezekiel, that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. Here we see that Moses met with God on a mountain in Mount Sinai. Here then we know that 
It's all going to an end of Mount Zion, where all the prophecies of the Old Testament, speaking of the second coming of Jesus and the kingdom, it's going to be a city placed on a mountain, Mount Zion. So all these pivotal points throughout the story of glory or the pages of scripture have to do with God meeting with his people on a mountain. So the first parallel is that it's on a high mountain. The second, that it's on the seventh day. Now, this is a really interesting, very specific detail that is given in both the Exodus account and the Mark account. Notice in Exodus, we know that Moses waited for six days as the glory of God encompassed the mountain. And it was on the seventh day or the next day that God called Moses out of the midst of the cloud to come up to him. Interestingly enough, here in Mark chapter 9, we give that spe- we're given that specific detail that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and they went up the high mountain. After six days means that it is here on the seventh day that Jesus is being transfigured. Now, this is interesting. Because remember, back in the Garden of Eden, it was the seventh day, the Sabbath day, that is all about stopping and dwelling and being with God. And so there, that model was given in the creation account. It then becomes a commandment for the people of Israel to stop everything. The seventh day, the Sabbath day, the holy day is all about stopping and being and experiencing God's presence. Interestingly enough, the transfiguration happens here on the seventh day. It's also interesting to know that the seventh day is prophetic in referring to heaven. That in the prophecies given in the book of Daniel and given throughout the pages of of the prophets speaks of the seventh day, the seventh day or this fulfillment, the idea of the Sabbath And the fulfillment of the Sabbath being that heaven to where we will be in the presence of God forever. That we will dwell with him. So interestingly enough, there's this parallel, the high mountain, the seventh day, and obviously the glory cloud. Some of the most obvious parallels here between the two accounts is that the glory cloud or this cloud of glory encompassed the presence of God, encompassed Mount Sinai when Moses met with God. And here we read in verse seven that then as Jesus is being transfigured, that this cloud overshadows them. And from this cloud, the voice of God speaks just like in the Exodus account, which gives us then the next parallel. God's voice speaks from the cloud. So God's voice speaks on Mount Sinai. Now God's voice is speaking here when Jesus is being transfigured. And one of our last parallels is that both conversations have to do with a tabernacle. Now there on Mount Sinai, God's voice spoke and gave instructions about a tabernacle. A tabernacle was, remember, a way for God's presence to be with his people. Interestingly enough, we're going to see in a moment, Peter's interruption. Peter's interruption is about a tabernacle. He says, what if I just set up three tents? Now, this idea of tabernacle, again, is all about the presence of God. Regardless, these parallels are interesting, but the contrast is even more beautiful. Because as Moses went up on that mountain to Mount Sinai, if man even touched the mountain, they would die. 
Now here, as Jesus is being transfigured and he's rewriting or mimicking possibly this account of Mount Sinai, Peter, James, and John are experiencing the presence of God and literally the glory of God is bursting from the seams of Jesus. What's changed? What's changed from Mount Sinai to this mountain? Everything. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. Jesus has fulfilled the commandments and the laws that were given there at Mount Sinai. Jesus had fulfilled all those commandments. Jesus had fulfilled all those things. And now here is Jesus. The divinity and the presence of God was placed within a man that we knew. A man who knew no sin that would become sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. See, at Sinai, Moses spoke with God about man's death. Here, Moses is speaking to Jesus about his death. According to Luke's account of this moment, the Mount of Transfiguration, they are talking, Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure. That word for departure is exodus. He's speaking about his exit. There in Mount Sinai, it was about if man doesn't do this, he would surely die. Here at the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Jesus who will surely die. Why? That we may live. That we may live and experience the presence and the fullness of God. So this is Jesus's transformation. His transformation, very interesting because Moses, as he would leave that mountain, Mount Sinai, he would return with what? A glow on his face. Here, Jesus is the glow. There at Mount Sinai, Moses' glow was a reflection of God's glory. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is the glory of God manifested before Peter, James, and John. Divinity is placed within humanity so that we as humans can experience the divinity and the presence of God. It's incredible. So here we have Jesus' transformation. But next I want to draw your attention to Peter's interruption. It's very comical. It's very interesting. A lot's been said about it. Peter's interruption. Let's read again in verse 4. In verse 4 we read, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. Luke's account tells us they're talking with Jesus about his departure, his exodus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, Peter gets a really, really bad rep for this comment. Like I have heard Peter get made fun of so many times for this comment. But I want you to notice the importance of this comment. Peter's interruption, I don't think, was random. In fact, Peter, as he's interrupting Jesus, as Jesus is talking with Elijah and Moses about his exodus, we know that at this exact moment, this took place, was around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Everyone say Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, I told you we're doing a deep dive. Are you guys still with me? Are you guys okay? Can you guys handle this? I believe you can. The Feast of the Tabernacles. Are you ready for this? There were seven feasts given by God 
for the Jewish people to follow, to experience, to do. Seven feasts. Three of them were incredibly important. All of them were important, but three of them were mandatory for all of the Jews to go up to Jerusalem and to experience this feast. It was the feast of the Passover, the feast of Pentecost, and the feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Ingathering, was happening during this time when Jesus was being transfigured. Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles was a week-long feast that began on a Sabbath day and ended with the Sabbath. It was the last feast on the Jewish calendar and was designed around feasting and celebrating the end of the harvest year. Now, all of the feasts were given to look back at God's provision, but were also given to look forward prophetically. Remember the most obvious, the feast of the Passover, to look back on God's provision as the angel of the death would come and would come during Egypt and it was this curse upon the land and they would get there that goat or that lamb and they would put it across the, the front and the entrance of their doorway and the angel of the Lord would pass over them, right? And we know that Jesus was the fulfillment. He was the lamb that was slaughtered before us so that God's, that the judgment would pass over us, that we would be covered by the blood of the lamb. So all of the feasts look backward, but they also look forward prophetically to Jesus. Jesus is always the culmination or the manifestation or the fulfillment of these feasts. Are you following? So the Feast of the Tabernacles was all about looking backward at God's provision in the wilderness of how God provided for them supernaturally as they lived in tabernacles and God's presence was in a tabernacle. It was looking backward upon that, but it was also looking forward to the second coming or what they would have known as simply the coming of the Messiah. It was the last feast on the Jewish calendar. And the Jews believed that the Messiah would return or would come on the feast of the tabernacles. And so the feast of the tabernacles was a dress rehearsal for the coming of the Lord. The Jews believed this because the prophet Zechariah prophesied this when he said in Zechariah 14, 16, everyone who survives all of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord, the host, and to keep the feast of the booths or the feast of the tabernacles. So this feast looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, where the Messiah would set up his kingdom and rule and reign. Are you guys with me? This feast was happening during the time that Jesus was being transfigured. Are you with me? Peter, while this is happening, Peter mentions, should I, this is great that we're here, should I set up three tents or tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? You guys got it. In other words, 
Peter seems to be under the impression or the idea that this is it. It's going down right now. Jesus is literally setting up. He's transfiguring himself. The glory of God, the manifestation of God is popping out of the very seams and the fabric and the being of Jesus. And he's like, oh my goodness, it's happening. The kingdom is going to be set up. This is awesome. This is good. Let me set up a tabernacle, a tent for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. What better time to usher in the kingdom when Moses and Elijah are here? This is epic. We're going to destroy everyone and set up the kingdom and rule and reign. This was the idea that Peter had. Remember Peter's last conversation was with Jesus when literally he was rebuking Jesus for suffering and dying. Peter's like, sweet, Jesus got it. It's going to go down right now. The kingdom is coming. It's happening now. Now pause there and just, that was a lot. But enter into this story for a second. Can you relate with Peter? Are you ever just waiting And begging Jesus to come back. You look around at all the injustice and the horror and the death and the disease and the lies and the betrayal and the sin of the world. And you're begging Jesus to come back. This was Peter in this moment. He just wanted the kingdom to come back. But get this, Peter's interruption was a misconception. He was missing the point. So often when we are, or our perspective is on the injustice of the world and the horrors of the world, sometimes we can miss the point. Sometimes we can miss out on Jesus only and what he desires to do. Peter here was missing the point. He was looking forward to the second coming, but he had absolutely no understanding of the first coming. That Jesus's divinity was wrapped up in his humanity so that he could experience a departure or an exodus or a crucifixion and a resurrection that we might be forgiven and redeemed so that we could spend an eternity in the presence of God. Peter was missing out on it. He wasn't thinking of it. Yet here is when we see Jesus' transformation, Peter's interruption, but then we see God's revelation. Let's read again in verse 7. God's revelation in verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. During Peter's interruption, God the Father interrupts Peter. From a cloud, mimicking the event at Mount Sinai, and the cloud from this glory cloud, the Father spoke, saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What a prophetic word for us as a church right now. So often like Peter, we can get caught away with what's going on around us or we can misinterpret or get sidetracked 
by different things, even within God's word, the prophecies, we can get misguided or misdirected with different things such as Moses. Moses was a representation of the law and we can just focus all on morality and how the world is it moral enough or our own morality, how we need to be better. Or we can get so over-focused with, with a character like Elijah. Elijah represented the miracles and we can get carried away or distracted just seeking another miracle or another feeling or another experience of God's presence and God's glory. Or we, like Peter, can have this prophetic edge and just get so caught up in all the prophecies that we miss out or that we forget about simply looking at Jesus only. Here, God the Father interrupts Peter and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's interesting because in that account in Mount Sinai, now listen, there's a lot of chapters on Mount Sinai, if you remember, in, in Exodus and then Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It's crazy. A lot of time was spent about at Mount Sinai. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, we read, that Moses tells the people that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father is literally repeating these words from Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen: You shall listen to him. That greater prophet, that I told you about, the greater than Moses, this is him. This is my beloved son, and he is the one you are to listen to. So this is a lot that we looked at here on the Mount of Transfiguration. We looked at the parallels between the Exodus account and how Jesus is rewriting or fulfilling the story. We're on Exodus is all about how man would surely die. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's about how Jesus would surely die that we may live. We talked about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the festivals and the feasts of the Old Testament, the Jewish festivals and the feasts, and how there's a prophetic edge here. There's an eschatological or an end times prophetic edge to the Mount of Transfiguration that we are going to, we are waiting for the coming of Jesus, that Jesus is going to return again. And he is going to set up his kingdom and rule and reign on this earth. And he is going to wipe away every tear from our eye. And he is going to make all things new. And he is going to rule with justice and with peace. That's something to be excited about. But what are our main takeaways tonight? Number one, God's plan is to be with you. God's plan is to be with you. From the garden to Sinai to a manger to the transfiguration, all of it from cover to cover is God's story of glory that God's presence might dwell with his people. God wants to be with you. Are you lonely today? Are you hopeless today? 
Do you feel or sense as if God is not with you? I think all of us can relate. We all know what that's like. To feel as if God's not listening, as if God's not hearing, as if God's not with you. But literally the story from cover to cover is all a beautiful story of redemption that God might be with you and that you would experience his presence. God desires to be with you. And his way to be with you It is necessary for his second coming in which he will come back and we will spend eternity with him. We first had to look at his first coming where he who knew no sin became sin that we would become the righteousness of God. His first coming was necessary. The crucifixion and the resurrection, his departure was necessary for us to be delivered, not from the bondage of Rome and from politics, from the, from the bondage of sin, that we might experience the presence of God. There's a beautiful old hymn, I forgot who actually wrote it, but it says this. Oh, the glory of the grace shining in the Savior's face, telling sinners from above, God is light and God is love. Telling sinners from above, God is light and God is love. There at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John literally looked into the shining face of Jesus. And as they looked up in the shining face of Jesus... They did not experience death like at Mount Sinai. When in Exodus, I believe it's 34, Moses says, I just want to see your face. I want to see your glory. And he, the glory of God passes from behind him. He could only see the back of the glory of God. Now here, Peter, James, and John are looking into the shining face of the Savior's face. And there we see that God is light and God is love. And we will look into that shining face when he comes again. God's plan is to be with you. And right now his spirit is in us. He is with us. He is dwelling among us. We get a foretaste of his presence by his spirit. God's plan is to be with you. Second, the best is yet to come. Truly The best is yet to come. That's what the Mount of Transfiguration shows us. It was a glimpse of what is to come, that we truly would look into the face of God. And until then, until that second coming of Jesus, when Jesus returns, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we know that we all with unveiled face, we are beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed or transfigured, metamorpho, we're being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. From the moment that we receive Christ as Lord, to the moment he comes back again, there is hope. He is, he is changing us from glory to glory. We are being transfigured and transformed into his image. That is what the process of sanctification is all about until we enter into glory. So listen, if you got problems tonight, I got problems. We've got problems 
the whole idea is that we are being metamorpho, we are being transfigured, we're being transformed into the image of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. He works from glory to glory and only the best is yet to come. Are you overwhelmed with your own sin? Are you overwhelmed with your own guilt, the way you react to your spouse, to your kids, to people? Do you ever feel hopeless? Am I ever going to change? Yes. That is why Jesus came the first time. That we would experience salvation and that he would give us his spirit, that we would be transformed into his image from glory to glory. And only the best is yet to come for he will come again. And it is Jesus only who is able to do that transformation. We can't do that transformation. Your spouse can't do that transformation for you. Your pastor can't do that transformation for you. Moses and the law cannot do that transformation for you. Elijah and miracles and experiences and sensations and feelings cannot change you from the inside out. But Jesus can. And Jesus only. And he goes from glory to glory until the best is yet to come. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison. The best is yet to come. Jesus is coming again. But lastly, what we learn from this mount of transfiguration, this incredible moment, is we respond with praise and purpose. We respond with praise and and purpose. What do we see? We see Jesus for who he really is here on this mountaintop. You see, this moment gave Peter, James, and John incredible confidence that Jesus is, in fact, God in human flesh. It is what inspired John to say there in John 1.14 that God dwelt among us And from glory, they saw the glory of God within the sun. It is what inspired Peter to say, man, I have literally seen the glory of God. There has been eyewitness accounts that have been recorded for us in this incredible book, the inerrant word of God. There have been men that have been seen the very glory and divinity of Jesus. They have seen him for who he is. And as we look into his word, we can see God for who he is. What is our response? Our response is praise. What did the father say from that cloud? He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. As that thunderous voice spoke, listen to him and to Jesus only. What happened is that Jesus left that mountain and he came down that mountain to a chaotic scene of a panicked, grief-stricken father whose son was tormented by demons and throwing himself into a fire. Jesus did not remain there on that mount being transfigured. No, he returned down to this hopeless and helpless state with the disciples to show them that he is the only power to save this broken world. 
And so we respond with praise, but we respond with a purpose. Because as we await for his second coming, where we will see his face, we remember the purpose of his first coming. And the purpose of his first coming was that God would descend to come and to seek and save the lost. And there, as he was transfigured, he would descend that mountain to seek and to save the hopeless and the helpless. You see, we go down from those mountaintop experiences where we behold the glory of God through his word, through interactions with God's spirit. We go down from those mountaintop experiences. God doesn't leave us there on those mountaintop experiences. He lets us come down those mountaintop experiences that we would bring that message of Jesus to a helpless and hopeless world. That we would go to a world and tell men that God's face is shining with love and with light, with compassion upon humanity. To tell them that God so loved the world that he would give his one and only son. We have a purpose, church. Oh, he's coming again. He will right every wrong. But until then, Peter didn't get it. He didn't get it until after the resurrection. We get it because we have God's word. We have the purpose. And that purpose is to be on mission. It is to go and to behold the glory of Jesus and to bring the message of the gospel and grace to a broken world. So don't fear. Don't panic. Look to Jesus and to Jesus only. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for just these mind-blowing parallels through scripture that it all points to you. That it's not a bunch of fairy tales and made-up stories, as so many people think, but it's this complex, beautiful, profound story of redemption of how you desire to be and to dwell among your people. God, I pray that we would not take your presence for granted. Lord, we understand that through your crucifixion, that the veil was torn from top to bottom, ushering in a time in which we can enter in boldly into your throne of grace and to experience your presence. Father, I pray that we would not neglect time with you, that we would not neglect searching and seeking you for your word promises that when we seek you, we will find you. Father, I pray that we would behold you in your word and that we would become more like you, that you would transform and transfigure us from the inside out. God, I pray that you would give us hope for your second coming. When we're overwhelmed with the craziness of this world and craziness of our own home and the lives around us, I pray that you would give us that blessed hope that you're coming again, that you're setting all things new, setting all things right. And Father, I pray that you would give us a motivation to see people far from you come to know you that we would go back down from mountaintop experiences 
to bring the power of the gospel, the power of God to salvation to a broken and hurting world. I pray that during this Christmas season that we would bring the gospel to our families, to our friends, to our co-workers, to the community of Vista, that we would be bold. Lord, empower us. Come upon us by the power of your Holy Spirit to embolden us to share you with other people. God, we praise you for your glory and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.